The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams Hello everyone, this is Maurizio Caschetto from The Legacy of John Williams and welcome to a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me today, my co-host and head contributor of The Legacy of John Williams, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Maurizio, how are you? All good, all good, thank you. So happy to see you again. So, we are here today with a special episode to present an exclusive preview of the latest John Williams archival soundtrack release, courtesy of Lollaland Records coming on May 2. It's the expanded edition of Sabrina, the score for the 1995 romantic comedy directed by Sidney Pollack and starring Harrison Ford, Julia Ormond and Greg Kinnear. It's a newly remastered and expanded edition on two CDs produced by John Williams archival soundtrack producer Mike Medicino, who is here with us today to discuss this fabulous brand new release. So, hello, Mike. Nice to have you here again with us. Hi, Maurizio. Hi, Tim. Nice to be back with you guys. Quite a while. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been about a year, I suppose, isn't it? Yes, it's almost a year since our last discussion where we talked about Space Camp and Presumed Innocent. And, of course, 2022 was a very busy year for you, Mike, because uh, of your massive work on Star Trek, the director's edition, plus the various soundtrack releases you produced. But it was also a red letter year for John Williams because, uh, you know, the celebration for his 90th birthday went on all the year, basically. And we had many record releases and several concerts and galas, including the historic concert here in Milan, Italy. And the year was capped by the latest Steven Spielberg John Williams collaboration, The Fablemans. And we were very busy covering all of this. And so, we found time now to see each other again, four months into 2023, uh, ready for what looks to be another stellar year for John Williams admirers. And so we are glad to have you back on the show to discuss this spectacular new edition of Sabrina. As we said, it's a two-CD edition presenting the expanded film score composed and conducted by John Williams on disc one, featuring more than 30 minutes of unreleased material plus alternates. And then we have disc two, which is going to be probably the real surprise for many John Williams fans. The disc is in fact a true additional album featuring the songs and all the source music that was recorded for the film, presented with the title Party in the Moonlight, Songs from Sabrina. And to give some context, uh, let's remember that in addition to the original film score, John Williams wrote two original songs with lyrics by esteemed songwriters Alan and Marilyn Bergman. The songs are called In the Moonlight and How Can I Remember, which here are presented in several different incarnations, including the version of Moonlight recorded by Sting, as heard over the end credits of the film. And in addition to that, the composer also selected several songs used as source music which were all newly arranged and recorded specifically for the film. The score and the song in the moonlight 
were both nominated for an Academy Award in 1996. There's 3,000 copies. That's the, the run. And visually, I mean, as always, Jim Titus has delivered yet again a lovely presentation. I mean, even the, the rear inlay, uh, you know, that shot of them both in Paris, that, um, you know, dark night scene. And then you've got plenty of lovely stills. And it really is uh, first class. Yes, it's a standout presentation also in that department. So uh, today, La La Land kindly gave us the permission to present two full tracks from this new release, one from disc one and one from disc two, as a special treat for our listeners. But first, Mike, let's talk about how this release of Sabrina was put together and how was your overall approach to the presentation. Well, as briefly as possible, it was one of many titles that La La Land had in the pipeline that needed to be licensed through Universal Music Group. And there were so many at one point, and things were moving so slowly, it had been backburnered and was intended actually originally for the 25th anniversary in 2020. I actually was starting work on it early that year, and then COVID hit. So it became my lockdown project. And in particular with disc two, which was the most fun to work on, took a lot of doing, but what ultimately made it come together was the thought of putting together a collection of music that would be for the type of party that suddenly we were not, none of us could have. And so that be, it became almost like a little sort of fantasy trip of mine to live in this elegant party of the type that no one was permitted to have. Unless you lived in number 10. <laughs> uh, yes. so, we, so it took its time because we had to all wait through the lockdown. And uh, then in 2021, the big focus was Fiddler on the Roof. So once that uh, was out, it then uh, sort of got on track again after some other things. It ended up being a very good one to come back after La La Land's break of a few months while they focused on clearing out stock and reissuing popular titles and so forth and taking a break from new releases. It was a good one to come back. It is. It's lovely. And certainly I think it's it's worth talking about the the, the liner notes you've written, Mike. Um, it's, 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 it's a very uh, valid point. You know, you start by saying that 1994 was one of, one of the very few years he took a, a full break and then he came back with with this and then Nixon and two contrasting scores, but so uh, brilliant in their own different ways. It was quite an interesting time uh, at that point where we didn't know when there would be more Star Wars. Indiana Jones seemed finished and Steven Spielberg was taking a break. So, And he was leaving the Boston Pops kind of all in one moment. So mm. it was interesting to see how he was now open and available for a wide variety of projects like the two you mentioned and things like Sleepers and Rosewood. And so the mid-90s was an interesting period for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And I think uh, this release also showcases very well the approach and the overall output that John Williams was offering that period of time. Um, so we are now going to present the first of the two exclusive preview tracks. This is from disc one. It's track 18 and it's called The Princess Grows. It's a scene halfway through the film and it presents the main thematic ideas that John Williams wrote for the film. Uh, the score features a lot of romantic writing with very lyrical tunes and this unreleased new track is a great example of all that. So without further ado, here's The Princess Grows from Sabrina, music by John Williams. 
And this was the Princess Grows from Sabrina. In addition to what I said introducing the track, uh, I must say that this is a score that really sits together with some of the other intimate chamber-like scores that John Williams has composed in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, you know, um, The Accidental Taurus, Stanley and Iris, and Stepmom, for example. You know, these type of projects aren't perhaps what the general audience associates usually with John Williams or the John Williams sound. But as we discussed also in previous podcasts, these are an essential part of his film output because he wrote intimate, character-driven scores uh, already in the 1970s, before the success of Star Wars. So in this regard, Mike, what were the most interesting things you discovered on this specific score? Uh, right. Well, most of what we heard was actually not used in the film, so that was the big revelation there, which was just how much he had recorded that is not in the film. And so I would actually say that only about half of the score was on the original soundtrack album. So it's a good, healthy amount of additional music. And it was just interesting to do the normal thing, which is to put it all in narrative sequence and then see what you have and to discover that there were variations here and there. And some of the variations ended up on the album different from the film, so then a decision needed to be, made, to be made about what to go with. And at the end of the day, it was about how to best tell the story through music and get through Sabrina's journey with just using music. And then anything left over became uh, the alternates at the end. And when it all adds up, you have the complete picture of all the scoring that he did for the film. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such an evocative score, isn't it? And one of the wonderful things you know we hear in, in the very essence of the music is that harkening back to a, a forgotten age to an extent and I think it's key as well isn't it to talk about the Bergmans and they're a big part of uh, this project weren't they? Uh, yes and it's uh, I mean I go into this a little bit there was actually an opportunity to ask John about this project and why he did it and he said I don't really know because, as we know, Sidney Pollack, who directed it, had a very long relationship with Dave Grusin, including after this film. So why John Williams for this? And it came down to Sidney's desire for something very romantic-sounding and classic-sounding, and perhaps Dave being more taking a more modern approach. He just wanted John for this, and John said yes again because he was available be, since there were no uh, Spielberg or Lucas movies in the pipeline at that point. <laughs> So it ended up just being a great opportunity, but he worked with the Bergmans who had a long relationship with Grusin on other Pollock pictures, but also with John Williams, having done, what, two or three films together, plus a lot of things with the Boston Pops over the years. So it was a nice opportunity to come back and renew that uh, collaboration, which um, is just as substantial, perhaps, as the one with uh, Leslie Brickus in terms of having uh, lyrics put to John Williams' melodies. Yeah, it's great to have Williams and the Bergmans collaborating together again for this. And it's my own very personal opinion that these two songs are some of the real best that John has ever written for any film, because they really are true, proper songs. And also the way he treated both melodies as thematic material throughout the film, in addition to the gorgeous main theme, uh, really shows the ability he always has in treating his melodic ideas and adapting them perfectly to the narrative. 
I mean, it's not just nice tunes, um, but it's something built with great care and sensitivity uh, to fulfill several purposes. Also, we have to mention that the film is a remake of the classic 1954 movie directed by Billy Wilder, which was based on a very famous Broadway play, and it starred Audrey Hepburn. And this makes another interesting John Williams association, which you explore also in the liner notes. Well, I think uh, that opened up a whole area of focus when John himself said from the concert stage that he always now associates the playing of this theme as a tribute to Audrey Hepburn, whom he got to know and for whom he had done a couple of uh, scores for her pictures, including all the way back to the 60s, which uh, I think is very much a vibe that he's recapturing a bit here with this score. And you, in, the, in the cue that you played, we got a great example of how the main theme from Sabrina can connect with and overlap with the song melodies. We heard one of them in that. They're, they're all wonderful tunes, and he just basically treated them like leitmotifs. Mm-hmm. I felt in studying it that he didn't seem to do an obvious thing, which is to take one song and associate it with one of the Larrabee brothers and the other song and associate it with that one. But it's more about reflective of Sabrina's feelings. And this is all a very interesting exploration of a character through music in a film which is a remake of a film that really didn't have a score, uh, the 1954 version. So this was just a... It wasn't a terribly successful film, but um, it certainly was done with great intelligence and care and as a as a character-driven piece, which is such a great, refreshing change for John Williams coming off of that whole period of uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars films. And again, into, into the 90s, it's interesting how many projects we get that are character-based stories. Yeah, totally, absolutely. And I think also... Another interesting aspect is uh, the fact that this movie was, you know, the male character in the film is played by Harrison Ford. And this is another interesting <laughs> association. Of course, we know that the big movies starring Harrison that John scored, and of course, we don't even have to mention them. But uh, in the 90s, he actually scored both this and Presumed Innocent. It was feeling like John was becoming a kind of official composer also for Harrison Ford, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> a little bit. And it's funny because um, when Harrison agreed to do the project, he wanted Sidney Pollock to direct it, and Sidney had turned it down prior to that. He appealed to Sidney through Sidney's brother, Bernie, who is Ford's costume designer and still is to this day. So when all that went on, there was no thought that it was going to end up being a movie with a John Williams score. And, and, you know, I, don't, I don't think Harrison Ford will ever say about Sabrina that that music follows me everywhere. You, yeah, he won't say that. that they will not uh, play it at his, ne- at his next colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and back to the time in which the score was written, um, I think it's important to underline how that period of time uh, offered John Williams the chance to show a different side of his musical voice after so many years uh, of writing big symphonic scores. Um, as you said, uh, it was a moment where his career was transitioning to a new phase and, you know, he did two big scores in 1993 for Steven Spielberg, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, and won an Oscar for, for the latter. And then he also stepped down as music director of the Boston Pops. So it really felt like a new beginning. 
but if we zoom out a little and see John's career with a kind of bird's eye view, uh, it seems to me that it also feels like a very natural progression uh, to a more mature, perhaps even more restrained phase of his career. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, my recollection of the time was just sort of accepting this. It's like, okay, this is what he's doing now because if he's going to do films, he can only do the films that are getting made. It was, I recall it being a little bit of a polar shift because if you went from the late 70s through the early 90s with him, he was omnipresent. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. uh, he was doing all the big films, He was doing everything for Steven Spielberg. He was conducting the Boston Pops. When you turned on the NBC News, it was his music. The Olympics came on, you, you got his music. You know, so to go from that, that was a very big period of time to just sort of take for granted. And when it changed, again, as I said before, it's like when suddenly Star Wars was kind of at the lowest point, if you can imagine there being such a thing, it was at a kind of a low point in terms of popularity or pop culture influence. And Steven Spielberg announced that he's taking a break and we didn't know at that point when he was going to make another film. And then to leave the Boston Pops again, all in that one little short span of time, it just was a natural evolution. I thought maybe we were thinking, okay, now we're going to get into a more advanced John Williams. He's going to do more concert pieces, more character movies, not really expecting the what we would get later on with the five to six year period of uh, three more Star Wars and Harry Potter scores where it's, it was almost like, a, almost like a new childhood coming back there. So it was nice that we had this period of time with a wide variety of projects and concert work on top of it um, so that he could explore just artistically, just the art of composition, just within himself, he had great opportunities. It wasn't a same old movie coming before him where he knew before he even saw it what kind of score it was going to need. He was back to having to actually sit and watch the film and it might call for a type of music he'd never really done for, the, for cinema before. So I think the career and the filmography and the output is richer uh, for have, having had this period in his career. was such a I think a, go, a golden era in many ways I know you know certainly with Black's Rhapsodic about the 70s and 80s quite often but the 90s and uh, is just as significant um, so it's uh, no I, I agree it's a uh, we're lucky to have this and this new release of Sabrina I think mean, Richie and I whenever we first heard it 
we both agreed. My goodness, I mean the the, the light years in quality of sound yes. from the original A and M album is is oh, it's like you know night and day. It's uh, fantastic new sound quality. Mm-hmm. Did you? have good elements to work with. I mean, it sounds like you did. This was all courtesy of uh, Paramount Archives, who I got to work very closely with on Star Trek. And this was run before that got started. But uh, it was the half-inch analog stereo. So it's the one that I like to work with on Sean Murphy's material because the mixes are all there in a pre-mastered uh, spot. And yes, all the performance edits need to be rebuilt, but you can you have the benefit of doing this at high resolution. Whereas in the 90s, when those CDs were made, everything was usually crunched down to just CD rate. And the edits and all that didn't exist in any other format. So it's hard to analyze this in any kind of mathematic way, but there just somehow feels like an openness to the sound. Well put. Yeah. And that even when you go ahead and master it for CD again, that you have the benefit of the improvements of technology that kind of maintain the integrity of what of what you're getting when you do a fresh analog transfer from something that's earlier back in the chain of when the music was created. Yes, it definitely feels much warmer in terms of, of sound. This is a very performance-dependent uh, kind of score uh, because a lot of its beauty it's uh, given by the exceptional performance by the many brilliant studio musicians that perform on the score. I'm, I'm, we'll go into this uh, in a moment, but it's so it feels it felt closer. I mean, if I feel I felt like both listening via headphones or even on loudspeakers, it felt like it was I was there in the room, very close to the musicians. If you know what I mean. Yeah. No, I, I do, and and I think a great example actually, a great track which you listening should definitely check out when you receive this uh, you know is um uh, for the point we're making here is linus's new life you know you have the the cello and the clarinet kind of talking to each other Mm -hmm. and that i mean that is just beautifully uh, beautifully resonant and you know rich and of course it uh, swoops off soon into the uh, the full kind of sabrina theme with full orchestra and it's uh it really is. It's um, a, a joy to hear this. And I think it's going to introduce, yet again, I know we say it a lot, but we're going to introduce another generation of John Williams fans to maybe a, a underrated gem, you know? I mean, Sabrina isn't going to be on many radars, but I think now it deservedly will be. I have to say something about that track you mentioned also and they, and it's and it's opinionated but I don't I think that it's opinion that's shared and I want to be careful to not be overcritical but on the original album it opens with the presentation of the theme from Sabrina followed by the song performed by Sting and then you get this track and it's the climactic track of the of the score narratively, and it just works yeah. so much better when you've earned it and you and the the whole thing symphonically builds to right. getting there. Um, mm. And that was too early of a give giveaway on the original album sequencing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well remembered. That's right. And yeah. I mean, you know about this better than anyone else, I think, Mike. Uh, as John has always been very specific as an album producer, and. In those years, we should say he also did much lengthier 
soundtrack album than in the past because the CD format allowed him to present more music and so on. Um, anyhow, speaking of producing albums, let's move to disc two and talk about how you built this wonderful and we must also say quite unexpected program featuring the songs and source music recorded by John Williams for the film. Um, as we said in the intro, it's called Party in the Moonlight, Songs of Sabrina. It's 22 tracks for almost 70 minutes of music. And you mentioned briefly a while ago about the idea behind the concept of this very creative program. So tell us more about it and give us a preview of what people can expect. Well, I would just say put it on and either give a party or imagine that you are because it's just it's that it's that kind of it's a standalone experience. I almost if I had my way would have put the release out in two separate jewel cases um, as if it were a second album. But it all is actually music recorded from Sabrina. And what I was the, 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 the thinking that went into it was really about the fight with the laws of physics. When I found out how much score there was to present uh, it filled up a CD without being able to fit the two songs that are sung with the Bergman lyrics, one by Sting, the other by Michael Deese, or the 11-minute party track that was on the original album. So that right there was about, what, 18 minutes maybe? That I couldn't even fit. Even if so, so the only alternative was to cut out alternates of the score that most people would never know existed anyway, or figure out a way to make this into two discs. Well, you could make two discs out of just the two songs and the party sequence track and an 18-minute disc too, which is a little bit feeble. But it turned out that he recorded a wealth of party music full of standards, many of them from um, older Paramount films, all with uh, the orchestra for playing at the various party sequences we see in the film. So the question then became, do we want to go there with um, the publishing clearances on everything? And La La Land was amenable to it because they really liked this idea if it was going to come together the way that it did. And John's camp totally supported it when I presented this as a concept. I think what really sold it is that there were also further explorations of the song melodies and um, some by solo piano, totally improvisational. And I think that is a good lead in for the other music that you wanted to share today. Yes, you offered a great lead in mm. for the second exclusive preview track that La La Land is allowing us to present for our listeners. This is track two from disc two, and it's one of the many surprises of this program. It's a piano improvisation on the tune of the song In the Moonlight, heard in the film as background source music during one of the party sequences. The performer here is legendary studio pianist Mike Lang, who worked for John Williams on many recordings and performed on literally thousands of film scores and albums. Mike Lang passed away last year and we'd love to present this track also as a tribute to him. He was a dear friend for all three of us and a truly inspiring artist for many, many musicians, and he is dearly missed. So here it is, In the Moonlight, piano opening, music by John Williams, performed by Mike Lang.
And this was In the Moonlight, piano improvisation from the disc two of the Sabrina Expanded Edition, labeled as Party in the Moonlight. And we just heard pianist Mike Lang vamping on the John Williams' wonderful tune In the Moonlight. As I was saying before, uh, this is a score that is very much performance-based and performance-dependent in the sense that we hear a lot of soloist uh, work throughout both the score and the source music. And I think the example we just heard is such a moving uh, tribute, not just to the fact that John Williams is such a brilliant writer of wonderful, memorable uh, tunes, um, but the way that he allowed many of his preferred musicians to shine. And this was a revelation, at least for me. I didn't know that there was so much piano solo recording done for this uh, project. So, uh, Mike, what can you tell us about your experience discovering all this beautiful stuff that was recorded for the movie? Well, it was just a revelation to go through the sessions and find it all there, not thinking at the outset that there really would be a place for something like that. But it just was a natural evolution of the process of figuring out how to make this two CDs. And when I realized I had so much of the standards and the two songs from the album and these as well, it was uh, a matter of how do I present them together so that people buying this can you know, really get everything that there is. I actually consulted with Bruce Botnick because, uh, I mean, I worked with him on a technical level a lot, but he's also produced albums. So this whole idea of trying to come up with the sequence and the order of when you have a, a compilation of songs, you know, that, that goes back a long way. And there was a lot to it that was dictated by running time. But even when a pop artist does, say, 10 or 12 of their own songs, how do they decide on the order? It was the whole, just the, the psychological process of that. And he just said, just keep playing it around and you'll know when it's right. You know, we have things now that were not available to people back in the 60s and 70s, you know, which are programs like iTunes or Apple Music now, where you, I could just put everything into a playlist and just literally grab yes. and drag and move them around and listen and listen and listen. And again, I had you know, most of the summer 2020 lockdown to work on this and until I was um, happy with how it was sequenced, interspersing the um, songs and the other standards that were played and these in piano improvisations until I ultimately landed on this kind of hypothetical party where a group might gather to celebrate the launch of two brand new songs and the principal artist would sing them. And in between, um, the orchestra would play other things and a piano player would come and play variations of the song and then the whole orchestra would play variations of the song as part of a, a mm -hmm. celebration. It just all came together organically. And when it was all said and done, here I had a one-hour party album. That, it was just, it's just, I've said this a few times, um, a lot when I'm working on liner notes, which is that it reaches a point where sort of it tells you what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to stop trying to overthink it and put your own will onto it. The project tells you what it wants to be. And yes. this, is, this was very much like that. And that's why it became a wonderfully satisfying disc in itself to do. I loved creating this album. And it was freed of any narrative concerns. I, I love all the various um, song melodies that um, John chose 
for it to record and conducted all of them and did some arrangements himself and his other orchestrators were involved. It just ended up being, to me, such a great, satisfying listening experience. And again, part of it was just coming at a time where you knew you were not going to be able to invite 30 people over and have a party. We hoped at that moment in time that we would eventually get back to that again. And, and I guess we are getting there. But at the time, it didn't look like we didn't know when that was going to be. So it was a, tr- it was <laughs> yeah. a tremendously therapeutic process for me to put that together. And I loved how it turned out. I'm only sorry we had to wait another three years for the thing to come out. Well, we love how it's turned out as well. I love the fact that this score features such a, an astonishing amount of piano writing and piano performance because we know that you know, it's John's instrument. And actually, and I, know, I don't know how many people already knew this, but it's nice to have it finally officially confirmed uh, through your liner notes that it's John himself that performed the great piano solo that opened the original soundtrack album and also opened this new edition, you know, the theme from Sabrina. Yeah, I thought that was known, but maybe not. Um, but yeah, so when you hear it as the solo piano, it is uh, John playing. And then when the orchestra comes in, it's then the takes that used, I think it was Chet? Chet Swiatkowski. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, and Mike Lang. So all the terrific piano players in town were involved in this recording. Ralph Grierson was on it. And then Randy Waldman, who did some arrangements, played on some of the takes, the piano, not solo. And then Randy Kerber, who played the synthesized harpsichord and other things, uh, also did one of the piano improvisations. What a bunch of sessions to have been at with all these people. Yes. John's uh, solo, that was actually one of the last things he recorded. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct, yes. And that's interesting because it reminds me also of, I think it was Schindler's List where he did a solo piano uh, himself, the one that was used at the, in the end credits. That's right. And it's interesting that there are a number of John's score where you have, you know, just the solo piano and that's it. Because I'm thinking also about uh, Jeff K. There's a, a cue that is just, you know, the theme on solo piano. And then there's uh, Lincoln as well. There are quite quite a few movies that he decided to offer, maybe just for the soundtrack album in, in some cases, a naked, let's say, presentation of the theme, as if it's the first time that he found that piece on the piano himself. So I like to to picture in my mind John sitting at the piano, finally finding the tune and say, okay, that's it, that's, that's the theme for the movie. Yeah, and again, it, it really brings you closer to him as an artist than when you hear a hundred musicians blasting away because with everything he writes, it starts at the piano. That's right. There's no doubt about just how brilliant this theme from Sabrina really is. I mean, yes, not to take anything away from How Can I Remember and In the Moonlight, which are also both great melodies, but theme from Sabrina in particular, the, just the fact that he, it still, he still programs it in concert. Yes. Um, and it's well, it's well received. It's another one of those scores that the concert has give, kept, you know, kept it going. It's just there's a timeless, great quality to it that uh, um, I think the orchestras love playing it. Um, I remember one rehearsal at the Hollywood Bowl where David Newman was conducting the first half of the program and included the theme. So he was conducting it, but John was sitting on the side during rehearsal. And when it ended, he looked over me, said, was that all right? And John said, oh, yes, great. The orchestra took a break and there was... Um, Oh, um, you spoke with her recently, too, the L.A. Philharmonic pianist. 
Joanne Pierce? Joanne Pierce, yeah. So she was the session pianist there. But John comes over. What she was using, she was using, and this goes back a number of years, so it was pretty new. The music was on an iPad, and John had never used it. So uh, he sat down, she showed him that when you touch the corner of the screen, not only did it change the page of the music, it actually animated a page turn. And he just found that so <laughs> thrilling. So he sat down and started playing the theme from Sabrina. Wow. <laughs> and, and just uh, smiling when he would stick a finger up in the page would animate and he'd keep going. You know, so another person out of work because now you have, you know, don't need page turns. <laughs> but... Um, you know, and then I just took it in. I'm standing there. I'm like, okay, I, John Williams is playing the theme for Sabrina. Okay, wow. you know, well, that happened. So uh, <laughs> that's a lovely, a lovely thing to do in a nice, casual way. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's something yeah. you don't see every day. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Actually, I'm remembering now that he did a performance uh, on solo piano himself with the Boston Symphony in '97. I think it's with Sage Zawa conducting. Yes, I think it's a clip that it's available on YouTube to to watch. So yeah, it's great. Uh, he's very humble about that. I mean, because he doesn't often take the stage himself to play the piano. So whenever this happens, it feels so much special to, to experience and to see and to watch and to listen. Nor does he think he's a particularly good pianist, right? But he is. He's actually amazing. <laughs> he is. Um, he's got such a... This piece is terrific because, I mean, you can really tell the difference when he's playing it. His touch is just uh, unique. You know, he almost kind of glides across the keys, almost looking like he's not touching them. I know he's said that so much writing, which he does with pencil, you know, has kind of compromised his right hand a bit when it comes to piano playing. But he's 91, so I think we can cut him a break. <laughs> yes. And, and, you, and you've talked to all these other great pianists um, who have who yes. worked with him extensively for decades now, really. So that's remained such an important instrument in his scores. And it's nice because... It almost never comes to the forefront in something like Star Wars scores. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, considered a rehearsal instrument um, or a recital instrument, but it's nice to have many of these scores where the piano is a key instrument in giving you the main theme. Yes. Um, and again, it brings you closer to him as, as a composer because it all starts there with him. He sits down in front of those piano keys every day of his life. And so when you hear um, a composition on piano, you're as close to him as you can get, really. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. Yeah, totally. The lifeblood as such. And I think it's also due mentioning some of the other musicians who are spotlighted in the score, including many of John Williams' first chair favorites, uh, Jim Thatcher on French horn, Louis de Tullio and Sheridan Stokes on flutes, and also trombonist Dick Nash, a true studio legend who performed on many Harry Mancini sessions, among others, 
including the Peter Gunn album where John Williams was the pianist. And I, Dick Nash is still with us, actually, and I think he's 95 or 96 now. Yes, and and, uh, and John Berlingame just visited him last week. Wow. <laughs> oh, very nice. And he offered these wonderful warm trombone solos on those classics like uh, Stella by Starlight or Call Me Irresponsible, those wonderful tunes that John picked. And, you know, the playing is absolutely astonishing. <laughs> and a great way for that instrument to shine because it's like, it seems like it's, you default so often to the trumpet or the French horn and the poor trombone gets, you know, uh, in the background, <laughs> like, like, like altos in a choir, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so it was just a great showcase of that talent. Yeah. It was. First time I as well acknowledged Dick Nash because I think he was credited on the original album. and He was, yes. It's um, muted. I think the tr trombone may be muted, but it's, uh, yes, it's a lovely sound and it's so warm, as you say. thinking about you know maybe it's because we just mentioned Harry Mancini and the fact that in the liner notes you actually reveal the fact that Harry Mancini was one of the composers that was supposed to score <laughs> this Sabrina remake if I'm correct in earlier earlier incarnations yeah that was an interesting research uh, had emerged and I actually have to credit my friend Dennis Cordell who was working on Frenzy for quartet records and the um, Mancini score which was rejected uh, and while researching yes. that, he came up with this correspondence that uh, Hank had had regarding earlier attempts to remake Sabrina initially as a stage musical. So oddly enough, there was a possibility of um, Mancini music going to Broadway way before when it finally happened, which was not until Victor Victoria, the same year as the Sabrina remake movie came out in 1995. But that opened up additional research that revealed that Paramount had been, with some regularity, trying to uh, get a remake going. The original film, the 1954 film, was incredibly popular. So after that, that one attempt to do it as a musical in the, I think it was the late 60s, that the momentum kept going and all, and all throughout. There was another attempt in the late 70s to do it again as a movie, but uh, and then, then that kind of petered out and then they actually had offered it to Blake Edwards when he was there. And so all this went on. There were a couple of opportunities where it might have had a Mancini score. So it's very interesting that then John Williams would come in and do this, having been a friend of Mancini's, having done his first picture for Audrey Hepburn in 1966, How to Steal a Million, yes. which was very much in a Mancini mode, who was really the top film composer yes. at that time in terms of popularity and in terms of breaking through to, uh, you know... Um, 
uh, hit songs. The popular culture. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting to have sort of tied all of that together and find that through line that uh, ultimately led to the 1995 remake. And it seems, somehow it seems right that it would end with uh, John Williams scoring it and considering his theme as a tribute to Audrey Hepburn. Remember, their relationship goes all the way back to the late 50s when he was her rehearsal pianist on Funny Face. And that yes. ties us in with Audrey Previn and Alexander Courage and that whole early part of the, the career. And coming when it did in 1995, right as we said of this, it was a moment to kind of regroup, right? So, and, and look forward, but also take a sort of an assessment of the past. So for him to have the opportunity to do this project, that it was an opportunity to sort of look back and capture a bit of a bygone era. Um, it, it couldn't have come at a more perfect time, really. It was, absolutely, yes. And that's, that's a perfect uh, closing of the circle, I think, in many ways, because he seems very, always very much able to acknowledge the past and, and the place where he comes from, because listening to some of the arrangements uh, in the South Music program is fantastic to see how authentic they are. They are all new arrangements, but they make those era of the late 50s, early 60s comes alive again because they feel so authentic. And so, you know, the sound is so spectacularly right. <laughs> it feels like they're really coming straight from the 60s. Yes. In my yes. opinion, immersive, yeah. With with some tailoring, I think for the modern ear, you know, but achieving kind of a more tight. There's nothing dated sounding about it either. It's now time to wrap up our conversation with Mike. We hope we've offered enough of a tease to get people interested and even excited with this new release. We are sure that John Williams fans won't be disappointed. And it's great that you, Mike, gave us some of your precious time again to discuss this. We can say that this won't be the only chat we're going to have this year. So we are looking forward to have you here again soon. I look forward to it as well, and there will be things to talk about. Great stuff. Yeah, and on top of that, there is also a brand new John Williams score coming in a couple of months. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is coming June 30, and hopefully the soundtrack album will be available on the same day. Well, it's Disney music, isn't it? Yes, and in fact, the album was just done. I haven't heard it, but it was just finished. And as we are speaking on a Sunday afternoon, John is flying to New York for the this gala at Geffen Hall in Lincoln Center. And Mrs. Spielberg's going to be there too. So, uh, that's, so they're in New York this week. Fantastic. And I think there's still some dubbing to do, but the album was done. That sounds pretty amazing. And the best way to end our chats today...
want to thank MV Gerard and Matt Verboys of La, La Land for granting permission of this exclusive preview. Thank you guys. And of course, thank you again, Mike, for your time and for the absolutely outstanding work of preservation and archive of so many scores by John Williams that you keep doing. You're quite welcome. And thank you just for keeping uh, every, all of this going and having this uh, great uh, collection of um, interviews and preserving all of this history because it's really important. And this, I hope, uh, will be a great addition to it because it's a release that I loved working on. Absolutely. Everyone is going to love this, I'm sure. Mm. Sabrina Expanded Edition 2 CD is coming May 2 on lalalandrecords.com. Thank you, everyone who listened. Go to thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more content. And thank you, Tim, for co-hosting with me. Yeah, thank you, Mauricio. And uh, yes, Mike, thank you for your work. And looking forward to keeping in touch, as always. And yes. Yes, brilliant. Thank you, guys. Okay. And you gentlemen have a great night. You too. You too. <laughs>